Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to our first Williams podcast for 2022. In our podcast, we try to uh, discuss topical issues and matters of a general nature with regard to investments. And to assist us today, we've got Duncan Williams and John Newsom. At this time of year, the newspapers and certainly the financial pages of the newspapers often include tips from various tipsters uh, about what we should buy or what we should sell over the next few months. Also, they talk about the opportunity to rebalance portfolios. Now, I wondered what you think about tips for shares and rebalancing portfolios and the sense of annual reviews or more regular reviews of portfolios. Uh, so we don't like to give tips um, and we don't we don't do tips, basically. As time has gone by, we have learnt not to do that. I think it's foolish to do that sort of thing, um, especially since we are long-term investors. Before Christmas, we were discussing interest rates and we were surprised that interest rates didn't go up in uh, November. And finally, Mr. Bailey has pushed the button and interest rates in December uh, went up. I think that uh, one of the major questions is where are interest rates going to be at the end of this year? Okay, John, have you anything you'd like to say? I think the whole the whole process is pointless and people do it because they perceive that they have to do it. Um, because, they're finan- because they're financial journalists, John, aren't they? Well, financial journalists, whether they're investment managers, whoever, um, uh, you get this drivel at the end of, of a year or the beginning of a new year. Um, you should always be thinking about, um, about what's going on. Uh, and the fact that it's January or December shouldn't, shouldn't, be, uh, sh- shouldn't make that... Um, any any difference so um, it, it's a pantomime that gets played out every year and it's not it, it's something that we don't get involved in it's it's pointless and how how many of these prognostications ever turn out to be correct to any to, to, to be correct in the first place so it's um it's not something that that we're remotely interested in getting involved in we're always monitoring what's going on um, in, in portfolios. As I say, why should you do it in, in midwinter? Right. So to carry on from um, what John was saying, um, we're constantly looking at people's portfolios. I own in my portfolio what I own for clients. I'm constantly looking at my investments. So people don't need to be looking at their investments all the time. Uh, there is a temptation to be looking on the internet for share prices and to be valuing portfolios on a uh, minute-by-minute basis, and that can drive people insane. In my opinion, you need to be looking at your valuation once a year, not once a quarter, as the regulator insists. So uh, you can get too close to investments, and as John alludes to, if you buy an investment, call it Nestle, we want to do what Buffett tells us to do, which is to buy a first-class company and to hold it for the long, long term, if not forever. 
there is no need to be jumping around all the time. The concept of rebalancing, saying that you have got 21% of your portfolios in America and it should really be 20 and you should increase your European weighting from 19% to 21% is farcical. It It incurs unnecessary expense and really you should be sticking with the investments which are performing well. It's as simple as that. The other thing which makes a mockery of it is that you can own shares in a company which might be traded on a certain exchange and you might accept that or think that you are invested within that country. But if you own Nestle, 97% of the earnings of Nestle come from outside uh, Switzerland. So you haven't bought into uh, the Swiss economy at 100%, you've probably only got 3% of your earnings coming out of uh, Switzerland. I think there's a difference between valuing a business and the price action that goes on day to day or minute by minute on the stock market. And uh, we're not interested in the latter. We're interested in the former. Yeah, I, I, I just think that it's a, it's a sales gimmick. That's all it is. Trying to rebalance all the time, saying that you must have so much in a certain country and, and so much somewhere else. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, Nestle uh, sat there at this precise moment in time discussing whether they are going to be increasing their sales in one of the 200 territories that they operate in or maybe pulling out of one of their uh, one of those companies, uh, one of those countries. So. Your geographical split is going to be changing every single moment. And as I say, I think it's just a gimmick by so many people that you want to be looking at this all the time. It is totally unnecessary. It's not, and it's not just ge- geographically. Um, it could be sectorally. I mean, how, uh, we, we've seen what's happened to oil prices recently. How many managers have you said... Oh, sorry, have we seen recently either pulling out of oil uh, or energy or reducing their exposure to it because they think it's the right thing to do in inverted commas? What we're now seeing is a supply shortage in oil um, and um, it's had the complete opposite effect. It would have been, it's been a very bad time to be pulling down oil investments. So uh, whether it's geographically or whether it's sectorally, um, it's nonsense. And um, as, as you allude to, it's just a gimmick. Um, uh, it, it's a gimmick that I think is perhaps meant to try and hook clients, but it's, um, it's a gimmick that is, um, is overseen, in, in my view, by uh, people who haven't a clue what they're doing. It's interesting how one of our major competitors has pulled various investment mandates and of course, these businesses are massive. The, the investment house is massive. And when they pull a mandate, the numbers which you're talking about are huge. So by moving from one group of company, one investment manager to another, the chances are you're, you're going to incur significant expense in making those moves, even if it's only the stamp duty. We're trying to say, Duncan, that um, excessive dealing is a drag on the portfolio. 
Yeah, and not only that, but it's also a change in strategy. Um, as John has said a second ago, some managers are, are out of oil, and then my money says they'll be back in oil. I mean, we keep on referring it to, to it as oil, but Total has changed its name to Total Energies. Um, not sure how BP is going to change its name, but uh, maybe it's British Energies. I don't know. But at the moment, oil conjures up this nasty black stuff, which nobody wants, although everybody uses it. So... I can foresee a time that uh, when dividends dry up from from some of these sustainable uh, energy businesses or the energy companies, as we've seen, have been going bust, then they might have to return to some of the oil majors for a steady flow of income. Oil will remain a staple uh, for global energy for decades to come. And anybody who is not prepared to accept that, I think, is not facing up to reality. Um, the base load of energy production that can come from solar or wind or alternatives is not anywhere near good enough uh, at this moment in time. The calorific value of, of fossil fuels is way, way higher. And the uh, lifestyle and the uh, standard of living of the whole Western world depends on fossil fuels. If you want to get rid of them, then you need to explain to populations that their standard of living is not just going to fall, it's going to crater. Uh, and that discussion has not been had. I saw the other day the pensions lifeboat had sold all its holding in, I think it was Chevron in the States, because of it wasn't engaging uh, sufficiently enough about decarbonisation. You probably couldn't have picked a worse time over the past five years to actually sell your Chevron shares, but um, but they've done it. And again, it's just another example of mission creep. This is the pensions lifeboat. It's meant to actually try and give people who have worked for companies that have gone bust some degree of pension security, but they've morphed into now deciding what they will and won't invest in. Uh, I would venture that their main role is to do the very best they can to ensure that that pension lifeboat is, is as robust as it can be. But as I say, we've got mission creep and they decided to sell those shares. I suspect they have lost uh, a significant amount of value over the past few months by doing that. Thank you, John. With the retail price index having hit 7% last month, and all the press at the moment are talking about uh, energy prices going up further, the cost of energy, uh, household bills going up, then you have to look at why we've got these problems. And one of the reasons is that we aren't energy self-sufficient as an island. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for those very interesting answers. And um, we've looked at some topical things there. In our last podcast, we looked at investing in gold, both in terms of shares and physical gold ingots. One of the topical things at the present time, and Duncan and I have discussed it earlier today, is electric vehicles and electric vans. And these vehicles are, are driven by batteries, and in these batteries we have rare elements which come out of the ground. So it seems to me that having discussed the mining of gold, should an investor think about investing in companies which mines these rare commodities, which may or may not find their way into electric vehicle batteries? 
What do we think about that? Well, I would say that I, going back to Buffett again, one should always invest within one's circle of competence. And it's not how wide the circle is that matters. It's how well you define it. So um, I personally don't feel at this moment in time that that is something that I could commit to because um, for, for all sorts of reasons. So it's not something that I would dismiss, but at the minute, I don't think it's something that, that I would feel comfortable doing. Um, I mean, mining, of course, um, it's all about ore grades and costs of production and what have you. So in some ways, the, the logic behind it is no different to gold mining. If, if we could find a business that we felt comfortable with, um, then I wouldn't dismiss it. But at the moment, I mean, I know one thing that a lot of this stuff comes from China, which um, and we've mentioned China before. China is a very difficult place to actually own businesses in. I'd rather sell stuff to the Chinese rather than necessarily own Chinese businesses. So I wouldn't dismiss it. But at the moment, it's not something I feel that, um, that it's not really floating my boat. Thank you, John. Duncan, what do you think? I think there are all sorts of problems and things which haven't been thought of, really. I mean, surely a lorry with batteries in it is going to weigh more than the 40-ton limit by a significant margin. I know that in Germany they've got overhead power lines like uh, the railways for recharging, but you've got, you've got all sorts of problems people haven't even thought of such as the wear of the uh, asphalt with all that extra weight. And what size brakes does a lorry have? It might, it, it, might, it, it might not use them very much at all, but it has to have brakes which can stop that vehicle, that hugely heavy vehicle, in a very short distance as per a normal lorry. And uh, Rivian, which is the American startup when I looked a few weeks ago, it's capitalized at three times as much as Daimler trucks. Daimler trucks have been making trucks for years. You see them on the motorways, etc. And um, and it employs 100,000 people. How can that, how can Rivian be worth three times as much? And I, I even think that getting uh, the electric vans and things, the, the range, as Ian and I were saying earlier on, is only 70, 80 miles. And that means that your, your delivery man is going to have to sit around whilst you're paying him to have it recharged. It doesn't make sense. The, I think... Sorry, Duncan, I was going to say, yeah, the, the economics of transport mean that you have to have a load that is large enough and a range that is long enough to be able to economically deliver goods. And at the moment, none of this is going to happen. So all it's going to mean is that the distribution costs are going to be far in excess of what they are now. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I don't understand is that... In Switzerland, the majority of lorries have to be on trains. Why, uh, why are lorries, as we, we, why are Spanish lorries coming from Spain through France, through the UK? Why aren't they back on the back of a train coming through the Channel Tunnel and half the train being deposited in London and half the trans- train being deposited in, in Glasgow? I, you, you see old films of the railway stations and they were all these goods were being delivered or, or goods were being put on, such as milk churns onto trains. I, I think we need a modern version of that, which would be a, a hyperloop of some description. So I'm not convinced that 
electric trucks and uh, are, are the way forward by any stretch of the imagination. Just returning to your point about uh, the business that was worth three times what, what Daimler is, you know, tra- transport, the manufacture of trucks, vans, cars, whatever, for the, for the vast majority of the time, it's pretty much a commodity business. You don't see the likes of Ford or Toyota on valuation multiples that are, that, that are very sexy. It is a commodity. So ultimately, you're talking about a commodity business. So what some new startup might know that, say, Dame LeBenz doesn't know, um, I'm struggling to find out. So why one would put these kind of valuation multiples on businesses that really are going to end up being commodity-type businesses, um, I fail to see. Tesla works in places like California, where all the roads are straight and it's sunny and warm. Yeah, I was driving along a country lane the other night and it was there was slush all over the road. It's dark. You've got all, everything on, the uh, blowers, et cetera, et cetera. And your petrol engine's working fine. And there's water flying around everywhere. I'm not quite sure how safe I would feel in a Tesla. I'm sure you are perfectly safe. But it, my, <laughs> I was always taught that water and electricity don't mix. Going back to your uh, friend, Mr. Buffett, I understand that he doesn't, buy shares in motor companies because he doesn't buy shares in things where a large proportion of their um, income goes on to research and development on the basis that Ford made the Ford Edsel, which was a pup. Yeah, I, I think for Buffett, he, he, would, he would look at a business like that and say that the returns on capital that are available throughout an economic cycle or, or over several economic cycles are just not good enough to justify the investment in the first place. And um, that's pretty much the, the view that, that, that we have, which is, uh, you know, business is about return on capital. And the return on capital that you can get from these kind of businesses is, is not impressive. Uh, furthermore, uh, whether it's cars, trucks, whatever, it, these are discretionary purchases. You have a recession; they can the purchases can can be can be delayed. So it's very lumpy. Uh, the returns are not great. Um, that is everything that we don't want in a business. To finish where you started, uh, Ian, I note that um, Rio Tinto have paid out, I think, about nine hundred and fifty million dollars buying a, a lithium mine of some description. So it, you can see where they think the direction of travel is but having said that there's a lot of people still researching hydrogen power and that would presumably use existing combustion engines and it's interesting to note that in the 2025 24 hours of Le Mans there is going to be a a hydrogen category so you can see where where the racing world is thinking that might go. It doesn't mean to say anybody will enter a car, but that category is there. And if, if, if hydrogen actually becomes the future, who's to say that it could be that batteries are the equivalent of a Betamax video recorder and hydrogen is the equivalent of a VHS? You don't trip over a hydrogen cell wire as you're walking down the street, do you? No, that's true. And it's got infinite flexibility. Um, in the same way that fossil fuels have with regard to range and charging. So um, it could be that if, if that is the way forward, then uh, batteries and electric uh, vehicles are 
but um, a, a mid-stage in, in, in the transition from, from full fossil fuel-powered vehicles, in which case it's an investment dead end. Uh, again, these are huge questions, um, and uh, it's the kind of question that, for example, Nestle don't really have to worry about um, with, with regard to the kind of products that they provide. So um, that's the kind of business that we feel much more comfortable with. This material shouldn't be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. You should consult an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of any investment or income received from it can go up as well as down and you may not get back the amount invested. Information recorded within this podcast was accurate at the time of recording.